We're looking in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Really, we have arrived to the central message of the book of James as we examine faith in action. For those of you that are willing and able, would you join me in standing as we read God's word? Brace yourself, church, for this is the word of God. It is inspired, it is errant, inerrant, it is perfect. It has no mixture of error in it. It is designed not just for us to hear, but to live. So receive the word today as it's read, to be put into action, to be put into action in our lives here, for this is the word of God. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, claims to have faith, but does not have works? Can such faith save him? For brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, be fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. For someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, as he was called God's friends. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let's pray together. Father, we have heard your word. We are challenged by your word. And as we spend time gaining greater understanding of your word, may each of us do so with an open heart and not just open ears, that we might become the word of God, that we might live it in such a way that people see Jesus in our actions. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you know that 75% of Americans believe in God? And of that group, 53% say they know that God exists and they have no doubts. Only a slim minority, 11%, don't believe in God, with merely 5% saying they don't believe in God at all. 
75% of American believes in God. That's a strong majority. The problem is that we have a lot of people that believe but don't live what they say they believe. That's the problem. Too many of us, and if you don't mind, let's remember that this word is written for us. It's not just those people that do it. But sometimes we do it too. We read the word of God as if obedience is optional. We seek the will of God thinking, okay, once I figure that out, once I know what the will of God is, then I'll have that as one of my choices to follow. And we miss the fact that once we know the will of God and once we've heard the will of God, our options are closed. Now we must do, we must live the Word of God. As he did with last week's text as we explored favoritism, James once again uses the socioeconomic diversity of their time to make a point about faith. Now he's not just talking about how we treat the poor, but he is definitely talking about how we treat the poor. There's a desperately poor brother or sister. We don't know which, because in his hypothetical illustration, he makes room for it being either gender. But this person is desperate. It's not they don't have any good clothes to wear. They have no clothes to wear. Last week, the poor person at least was in underwear, right? This week, the hypothetical person he's talking about is naked. A man or a woman has nothing to wear. Not only does this person not have anything to wear, they don't have anything to eat. And the church doesn't offer any help. Notice what James says. He speaks of a brother or sister who is without clothes and without food. He's using the same language that he uses throughout the book. We know that he's writing to believers, believers with a Jewish background. And he refers to us as the secondary readers and them as the primary readers, as brothers and sisters over and over again. And now he says, a fellow believer has nothing and is in dire circumstances. And the church gives them nothing. Well, that's not totally true. They give them something. They give them empty platitudes, words, words, that's all they give them. Now in contrast, James is about to talk to us about the power of the tongue because he doesn't want you to think that just because these empty words are powerless that the tongue is powerless, that message is coming. Pastor Charlie will be preaching that soon. But for now, he's contrasting actions with words and is saying, your words mean nothing. 
It's what you do that matters. So instead of supplying clothes, this person told the poor person, stay warm. Stay warm. What good would these words do? I mean, forget about the shame that would be present here, just the physical condition of being cold. Hey, we live in sunny Southern California, and I was a little cold this morning. Think about the need. And the representative from the church just says, be warm. You know, God bless you. What good would these words do? And that's James's point. What good do these empty words do because you can't stay warm with words? When you're cold, they're worthless. But they're worse than worthless. They're humiliating. They're demeaning. James is not saying that the brother or sister didn't have nice clothes. He is saying this person had no clothes. They were in a dire, desperate situation. Now, I don't know, maybe it happened this morning. Maybe you walked into a walk-in closet jammed full of clothing and you looked around and you said, I have nothing to wear today. Maybe it's because you were trying to match the celebratory tone of the day. Uh, maybe you were looking for something that with, went with your skirt or your pants and nothing was right, quite right, or maybe you couldn't quite fit into it. I don't know. But I don't know how many times I've said that or heard that, walk into a closet full of clothes and say, I have nothing to wear. That was not this person's situation. They had nothing to wear. And all the fellow worshiper did was offer words demeaning words. Their words could not warm the person or cover the humiliation. Their words, and James's argument is, their faith was worthless. If your faith in this circumstance he's describing doesn't move you to action, to figure something out, to find a way, to pool your resources, to help somebody that is a brother or a sister with this need, James is saying, I don't want to hear about your faith. I know about your faith. I'm watching your faith with your actions. Your faith is worthless. But James isn't going to let us off the hook right here. 
just yet, because this person was also hungry. And again, in James's example, he isn't saying that this person doesn't have good food or healthy food or tasty food. He's saying this person has no food, period, nothing. And not a single member of the congregation offered a solitary scrap of food for the starving brother or sister. Instead, someone spoke up. Words, 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 that's all they have is words. And the brother or sister speaks up and says, be well fed. Their words, and by extension, James is teaching us their faith is worthless. Now, James is writing this book to Jewish brothers and sisters, and so the context of them hearing this example is their long heritage and tradition of the Jewish faith that taught them to show hospitality to strangers. This is inconceivable that James's example could happen. It's inconceivable. It doesn't make any sense. Because even if they didn't have faith, their culture, the way they were taught, just common human decency, right? I mean, it doesn't take faith to feed a hungry person. There's something inside of you, right, mamas? Right, daddies? There's something inside of you that sees somebody that's hungry. And you want to push your unfinished plate over to them. There's something that makes you want to help. And in the Jewish culture, it was a part of the fiber of their culture that they helped, they tended even to strangers. Leviticus 19.34 says, You will regard the alien who resides with you as the native born among you. You are to love them as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. They help people in need. They wouldn't ignore a stranger, and neither would they ignore a brother or sister. It would be shameful for this. And for this reason, I had just a big question mark when I'm studying this text again. James, what are you doing here? Why are you bringing up an example that really isn't relevant? Because there's no way that they would do what you're saying they would do. And I don't think any of us in this room would either, would we? We would do something. I mean, even if I don't have clothes that'll fit, we've got a blanket out in our car right now we would offer to somebody, right? You would too. So what's James doing here? It's inconceivable. The recipients of his letter 
or the, those that are hearing this sermon likely would ignore a need like this. And James says all they did was talk. They offered worthless, demeaning words. I think James wants us to get a point. And he's using this like, um, I don't know, two tons of bricks falling on us. Because he wants us to pay attention. If all we do is talk, then we are insulting people around us. And our faith, it's worthless. But James isn't going to let us just stay with that evaluation. He ratchets, he ratchets it up. He doesn't just say it's worthless, he says it's dead. Now that's a vivid image. Now it makes sense to call actionless faith as death because it's not moving. But that doesn't mean death isn't active. There is a deteriorating presence, a decaying presence, especially in the early stages of death. There is a distinct stench around death. You see, actionless faith is worse than no faith because if you have no faith, at least it doesn't stink up the room. But when you have faith that is just words, when all you have with your faith is words, there's no action, there's no application, you're not the living faith, you're the dead faith. And the aroma of the faith of people like that fills the room. And those without faith look at us in that state and say, I'm better off than they are. And they're right. And they're right. Inactive faith does not merely just fail to do good. It makes the situation worse. The brother, the sister would not just leave the church naked and hungry like they came. They would leave humiliated and demoralized and knowing that nobody really cares about them. In one sense, they leave better than those that were well-fed and well-clothed. Because the scripture speaks of them of being rich in faith in chapter 2, verse 5. And it speaks of those with words but no deeds as dead. The naked and the hungry are better than the dead. Especially if they're rich in faith. As believers, we all have faith systems that are important to us, belief systems that are important to us. 
sometimes using the exact right word to describe a theological concept as important. It certainly is in my work and in my life. I care about words, and I want the right word to be used. But the words must be accompanied by right living and by actions. Real evidence is in what somebody says, not just what somebody, excuse me, what somebody does, not just what somebody says. I mean, you can believe that exercise is important, but it doesn't help you till you get off the couch. Am I right, church? Yeah. Believing in honesty doesn't do you a whole lot of good if you will never admit when you make a mistake. Believing in generosity won't benefit anyone until you open up your heart and your wallet to help that person in need. If you really believe something, you apply it to your life. Genuine faith and works are inseparable. You cannot have one without the others because works are the demonstration of your faith. Now, like most Americans today, 75% of us believe that there's a God in James's audience. They believed in God also. You notice that James does not correct what they believe. No rebuke. Now, James is in our grill through much of this epistle, especially right here. I mean, this guy's a straight talker. He's telling it exactly like it is. He's calling us out. But he doesn't call us out for what we believe. In fact, he says, you're believing right. Of course, the cornerstone belief of the Jewish believers comes from Exodus 20, verse 3, that says, do not have any other God before me. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And James references that. He says, you believe God is one. Good for you. Great. The devils, he says, also believe, and they tremble. Now, James's audience wasn't even trembling. Satan and his followers understand they believe the same thing. But their faith hasn't changed who they are. Faith that is just believe, beliefs that isn't lived. James is now saying, he said it's worthless. He said it's dead. He's now saying it's demonic. He's saying it's the same thing that the demons have. And then he asks the question, is that going to save them? Well, the demons know what their future is. Matthew 8, 29 says, suddenly they shouted, what have you to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Genuine faith may begin with good theology, but it never ends there. It continues into right actions. Real faith is what we live, not just what we talk about. 
Jesus teaches us that genuine faith is seen in our obedience to God. Now, at first glance, the question that James asks here, does faith save him, causes the hair on the back of our ne necks to rise. Because, of course, faith alone, grace alone, we know that. And then he says, was an Abraham our father justified by works and offering Isaac, his son, on the altar. Is he contradicting here what Paul has taught us, that salvation comes by grace alone, by faith alone, not from works, as we read in Romans 3 and Ephesians 2? Well, James and Paul are using the same word. They're speaking of justification, but they're speaking of it in different contexts, and they're addressing separate issues. Paul is criticizing legalism, which is a faithless work where you do good works, but there's no faith involved in it. And James is criticizing creedalism, where you have the right words, but there's no faith to back it up. Both of them are criticizing that they're not together. One has one and not the other, and the other has the other, but not the one. And both Paul and James is telling us that this approach, the either-or approach, is anemic. Yes, Paul teaches us that salvation comes because of God's grace through faith. But he also teaches us that the purpose of our salvation is good works. Let me read Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For you're saved by faith, we're saved by grace through faith, that is not from yourself, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship. I know that one of the tools the enemy uses is to make you feel guilty where you fall short. And I know that he may be attacking you right now as you sit underneath the preaching of God's word. You are God's masterpiece. Look at me. You are God's masterpiece. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. He loves you. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. for good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is how Paul talks about the relationship of faith and works. He says you've been made, you've been remade. That sin that has blemished you 
that has made you less than. He's died on the cross to make you new again. And with his blood, he has remade you. In his image. You're his workmanship. Every one of us have shortcomings and every one of us have failings and every one of us fail to live up to our words. When that happens, we need to seek forgiveness and start living what we say we believe. We don't let Satan win the battle of beating us up, of beating us down. Don't you let him tell you who you were. When he does, you just tell him who you are. You're a king's kid. You've been recreated. You're his masterpiece. Now you listen to me. And when you say that, you live in such a way he knows what you believe. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. To Paul, works were a given. If you had the kind of faith he was talking about, works were a given. James is not teaching that faith and works here are opposing uh, forces and that works apart from any faith would save us. He sees them as complementary concepts. That the way you know that your faith is genuine is by looking at your works. And we do this in every other area of life. We do this in every other area of life. We have an employer that says he cares for us and he cuts our wages. Doesn't look out for us. She demeans us. We know that employer doesn't care for us, am I right? We know that. We have a friend that only shows up when it's something in and for them and they can talk about what kind of friend they are, we immediately dismiss them. We know what they are. They're a moocher, right? They're a moocher. We know. We do this in every other area of life. We do it all the time. If the dog is constantly biting you, it's not your pet. And if the person is constantly hurting you, they are not your friend. We get that. Let's apply a little common sense to our faith. Don't we know that the same is true with our faith? People that don't live their faith don't have a faith. Both Paul and James teach us that life demands more 
than words. It demands action. You know, Lakeshore, I believe it's God's will for us to have a faith that boils up inside of our soul, that propels us to action, a faith that not only saves you, but enables you to be a part of God's redemptive history here and around the world. So what can we do to apply this passage this week? I have, uh, have three suggestions, and I, I need to tell you that with each one, the altitude gets a little bit higher, okay? So you need, to, you need to at least say, I'm in on the first one, because by the time we get to the third one, it's going to take some courage. Are you ready? Brace yourself. Number one, spend some time in prayer this week. Can you guys do this? Spend some time in prayer this week asking God to expose areas in your life where you're all talk. Just say, search me, O Lord, and try me. Are there some areas in my life where all I do is talk and I'm not living what I say I believe? If you'll listen, he'll speak to you. Everybody on board? Okay, the more courageous among us. I want to challenge you to create a faith in action journal this week. I want you to begin after the celebration is over, and I hear there's tacos coming. All that's standing between you and tacos is you agreeing to do these things. You get that, right? A faith in action journal. After we have our tacos and hug each other's necks, get out a sheet of paper or open up a file on your computer and write down five things, core beliefs, that you hold strongly to. Just five. I know you have more than that, but at least five. Write them down. And then over the next week, Every evening before you go to bed, write down examples of how your life demonstrated or did not demonstrate these beliefs that you hold dearly. And now for those that are willing to scale the Mount Everest of faith with me, this week, I would like for you to have a discussion with your spouse, your best friend, your accountability partner, someone you trust, and ask this question. How consistent am I at living out my faith? Listen, avoid getting defensive, and prepare to make some changes in your life. At Lakeshore, the church that love built, we don't just read the word, we don't just hear the word, we live the word. Am I right? 
Let's take steps this week to become better at doing that. And that will give us something to celebrate.